Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brew Church Podcast. My name is Fabian. I am your host, and I'm glad that you are listening. If you would, please hit the plus button on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify as a way to help more people find this audio content. This audio is recordings from our Sunday gatherings. And if you would like to support what happens here on this podcast or in the Brew Church community in general, there's a giving button in the description of this. Uh, We hope that this is helpful for you and that you gain some good tools to lead to a life of abundance. Enjoy. So before I invite uh, Dr. Bartholomew up, if you were not here, he was uh, here for our second event ever at Brewter. So it's kind of fun to like have you back, um, you know, like to just get to see like where Brewter has gone and um, yeah, a year or so later, a few months, but a year or so later. Uh, so Dr. Bartholomew is the assistant professor of ethics, church, and society at St. Paul School of Theology. He received his doctor of philosophy and religious and theological studies from the University of Denver and Iliff School of Theology. Uh, he's an activist, organizer, social ethicist, I don't think I said that right, but (laughs) his research is focused on the relationship between economic justice and racial equality, black theology, and the Black Panthers as an economic model of racial justice, Uh, and you'll hear some of that today. And he has quite a few publications, but I wanted to highlight one. He recently wrote an article titled The Poor People's Campaign, A Sacred Memory and Call to Action, where he talks about... uh, a little bit about how after seeing some of the victories on the front of civil rights, Martin Luther King turned his attention towards economic justice, and uh, a little bit about how sometimes we chop off part of the name of the March on Washington, (laughs) Um, and he he might mention that a little bit too, so we're going to talk about that. He has a book out called Black Theology and the Black Panthers, and um, I believe he's going to talk about another book that will be coming out. No, a dissertation. This is, yeah, this is dissertation work, so I got that wrong. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of fun things. Let's welcome up Dr. Joshua Bartholomew. Welcome, welcome. We can, you know, move, you can move the chair closer if you want to be closer to your notes there. <laughs> uh, and that's your mic. Thank you. Yeah, how's it going? Oh. Pretty good. There you go. Now we're Pretty on. Good. Okay, uh, cool, cool. Thank, thank you, Fabian, for yeah. that introduction. Um, Is there anything that I missed? So my book uh, will be out this July. Okay, it is a book. It okay. will be out this year, uh, Black Theology and the Black Panthers. Okay. Um, I di- it, it is... Um, Built upon my dissertation. Ah, okay. So I did rework some things specifically for the for the last chapter, um, to make it more of an ethics academic text. Cool. Uh, but yeah. Okay. Oh, well, yeah. Great. Thank my you. Uh, yeah, my bad. <laughs> and thank you for uh, inviting me back. For yeah. This important conversation. Of course. No, it was, it was it was fun having you here last time. So we got you got to get more. So let's get right to it. Tomorrow's Juneteenth, which is a significant holiday that we didn't celebrate in the United States for a long time. Um, for various reasons, probably, and we're here to talk about it. Um, but in other ways, this is kind of a forward-thinking conversation, as you and I talked about, um, because this work isn't done. Um, so let's begin with the holiday and kind of go from there. What is the lesson of Juneteenth that we should take forward? Yeah, so I think that um, remembering Juneteenth is really important uh, for the memory of this country's history. And, you know, obviously we can't think about the future without learning from the past. Um, There are lots of implications uh, that we can draw from Juneteenth. Uh, One that comes to mind is that no one who is black um, will be free unless all black people are free. Mm. You know, I think Juneteenth uh, teaches us about the lengths to which uh, capitalism seeks to preserve um, that demographic of cheap labor um, that originally came from the enslavement, the system of enslaved uh, people here in the United States. Um, And so just thinking about the lengths to which um, certain laws and policies uh, in the US went to try and preserve that demographic after Juneteenth 
Um, you had the black codes, you had uh, sharecropping, um, you had um, Jim and Jane Crow, um, and ultimately we see today mass incarceration um, sort of connected to all of these realities. And they reflect back to us um, an attempt, an effort, a really strong uh, effort um, to monitor, um, control, surveil uh, black bodies um, after that system of enslavement um, was uh, dismantled, so to speak. Yeah, so it's almost like the freedom work hasn't really been, it's like you, like it, it, I know a word that we had used in the conversation was a facade. It's this idea that, you know, there's, yes, Juneteenth was a big day, and obviously, like, tomorrow is a day worth honoring and um, worth reflecting on the fact that um, there are people alive today whose um, great-grandparents could have possibly, you know, depending on how old they are, um, could have been slaves. And that, that you know, impacts people generationally, but um, the work really didn't, I mean, that's, that's some of what you've, the people you've studied were trying to say that, right? Right. So, um, first of all, understanding why the work needs to continue um, is important once you put it in the context of the enslavement of African peoples being an economic institution, mm. um, really an economic institution that laid the foundation for how capitalism functions in the world. And so when looking forward in time, uh, you know, you mentioned the Poor People's Campaign. Um, you know, Juneteenth was 1865. I mean, we're only talking 100 years later right, where, where black people um, really organized and applied social theories uh, in ways to address the issues wrong with capitalism um, at, at, the, at the foundation of it. Um, and so that work needs to continue, mainly because um, we still need social theories to address uh, the inherent racism that designed capitalism in the first place. Um, to really uproot racism, you have to deal with capitalism as well. And without uh, a viable social theory to address um, the sort of economic undercurrents uh, present within racism, it would be inadequate to just think about racial bias or racial prejudice or racist ideas and attitudes um, and not address the economic system that concretizes these ideas um, and actually operationalizes them and puts them in place. Wow. The, the, the word that you used, and I know this is a charge word, but we put it on um, the, the flyer, so uh, we're here to talk about it, but the word that you used is reparation. And the reason you use that word is because we need something significant, right? Something significant to address that underlying economic um, problem. So when, when, I s when I say the word, or when you say the word reparations, what do you mean by reparations? And what's the relationship between that word and those movements and the work of liberty, which is what Juneteenth is about? It's the, you know, a day of liberation uh, so yeah, t talk a talk about that. Yeah, so you know, a lot of my work deals with liberation and 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 signifying liberation really from an economic point of view. Um, so I'm very interested in people's ability uh, to self determine their lives, particularly communities. Um, and so when we think about uh, the community of enslaved uh, people after Juneteenth, um, their ability to self determine um, as a community, as individuals, um, was 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 compromised. Uh, in such a way where they were still pretty much, uh, you know, in uh, a different version of slavery. Um, they sort of nuanced slavery. Um, and, and, and so this, this becomes how we understand mass incarceration, right? It's, it's, it's just a sort of continuation of the nuances of the enslavement system um, to keep uh, um, in preserve and in access, ex excess, excuse me, excess and access, um, a particular labor demographic that originates during the enslavement time period. And so when we think about reparations, it's really, well, how do we repair um, the fact that 
Many Africans were uh, held hostage in the United States, forced to work on uh, labor camps. And then, um, you know, I don't want to say emancipated, right? Um, but were then uh, said that you no longer have to, <laughs> to work on the labor camps, right? How do we repair such a system given that there's still uh, an economic undercurrent present within our capitalist system today and our society today um, that still sort of seeks out and targets um, black people in such a way that it feeds back into that, that same sort of system, even though it's nuanced. Um, preventing black people and black communities, more specifically, to self-determine their lives. Uh, so reparations is really about thinking about alternative models that would allow for uh, black communities and really all people to determine their own destinies, uh, for communities to think about what it means to determine their own destinies. Uh, and that was actually where the Poor People's Campaign begins to pick up. You know, uh, Dr. King, he begins to focus on non-race-based issues, um, really to widen his base of political support and draw in a lot of um, poor white people who, historically speaking in the U.S., have always been told that they were better than black people. Because right? at least you have that, right? right. Like you're poor, um, but at least you have this. Um, and there were even efforts historically uh, in the U.S. Um, politically to um, bring together poor black people and formerly enslaved, um, excuse me, formerly enslaved black people and poor white people um, in the South in particular. I believe the, f the, the, the fusion party is a good example of that, which was created in the South. This was an actual political party of, of poor white people um, and, and black people um, really trying to work together um, to determine the destinies of those who felt, you know, they were being exploited uh, in a capitalist system by um, a wealthier ruling class, right? Um, and history tells us, and history will, well, well, the United States will go, has gone to great lengths to uh, try and erase this history. Um, but when you uncover it, history, history has taught us that um, they were met with aggression this, this particular party was met with aggression. Um, and we've seen, you know, uh, examples of this throughout history. Anytime, um, you know, uh, poor people, black people in particular, have tried to uh, self-determine their communities, economically speaking, um, they've been they have been met with aggression. One example that comes to mind um, is the, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1912, uh, for example. Um, but really, reparations... Uh, is about developing those alternative models. It began with the Poor People's Campaign um, and then essentially transformed uh, into the Black Panther Party, which is the work that I do, which was really a departure from the Civil Rights Movement into another movement called Black Power, which was explicitly about the self-determination economically and politically of, of black communities. Well, so the, the thing that strikes me is two, the self uh, two things, the self-determination and just the idea of reparations as repair. I think that that is a huge thing because when people talk about this, maybe, you know, if you ever have conversations with family members who, you know, you're having these charged conversations about how do you heal some of the racial injustice that uh, exists in our country, it's like, no, we have to repair it. We haven't repaired the original problem. We're just, like I saw a car uh, a couple days ago. <laughs> <laughs> that had masking tape <laughs> on the the wi the window that uh, whatever the like the mirrors that you used <laughs> like it was just like masking tape I'm like they didn't just go buy those those things are made out of plastic it's I mean probably doesn't cost more than 20 30 bucks like you could easily just replace it but it's that's what we've done like we've just put masking tape on the problem and never actually repaired the core issue and so I mean some of the stuff that you're about to get into with uh, the wealth of knowledge that you have about the black the Black Panthers and the Civil Rights Movement, the Poor People's Campaign, it was an attempt to say, no, we actually have to get to the root of the problem. We actually have to repair the damage that was done. We can't just keep ignoring it and leave this leaky faucet um, and just pretend like it's not there. You know, we have to actually get to it. And because this is people, it's even more crucial than repairing a car. Like, this is people's lives. 
that we're talking about. Right. So um, what the Black Panthers did was groundbreaking. Um, and, you know, the reason I, I dedicated um, all of my career to it so far uh, is because we haven't ever seen what they have done in history um, on such a successful level. Um, and I want to I want to first contrast that to another movement for racial for racial justice um, and, and really talk about why one was effective and why um, the Black Panthers were, were um, historically effective. Um, during, uh, really during and, and sort of after the Civil Rights Movement, there was a racial reconciliation movement that, that was inaugurated by um, white Christian evangelicals. Um, well, first of all, how many people know that? Just by, just by a, a show of hands. Okay. That's huge. So <laughs> just like to think about that, like white evangelicals started a movement for racial reconciliation. Right. And, and, and think about the timing, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, during, this is during and after the civil rights movement. So there's already a racial justice movement at large that's, that's very mainstream, very public. Uh, and, and white Christian evangelicals uh, started a racial reconciliation movement. Um, now, all of you don't know about this movement which is no surprise, but I'm sure everyone knows about the civil rights movement, right? Um, now, there's a reason for this. There's, there's a reason for this. Um, I wouldn't say that the racial reconciliation movement led by white evangelicals was successful. Um, and the reason being, there's a book out called Divided by Faith, written by um, uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. And they basically interviewed members of this racial reconciliation movement, and asked them very specific questions about uh, racism, um, why they thought racism existed, um, and how they thought racism could be eradicated. And they gave three, one of three answers. Um, when these white evangelicals were interviewed, they would either say, well, you know, racism is a problem because people keep talking about it. If people stop talking about it, then it would go away. They would also say, well, racism is more of an individual problem. It's not a group problem. If people could just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, then they could overcome racism. Or they and or they would also say, people need to repent. It's because people are sinful and they're not repenting that racism exists. And all of these answers were examined from a sociological point of view. Uh, there's, a sociolo there's a sociologist named Ann Swindler who talks about um, different communities and groups having cultural toolkits in which they pull out tools to deal, cope, uh, strategize through conflict uh, or any sort of social problem in their environment. And what... Uh, Emerson and Smith found was that in the cultural toolkit of white evangelicals, what was missing was an understanding of why their white privilege gave them advantages. It wasn't that they couldn't see race. They couldn't understand why race and being white gave them advantages. And so in their cultural toolkit, was uh, what's called free will individualism, right? They understood themselves as individuals in society and they understood everybody else in the same way. Meaning, um, they completely overlooked the systemic factors associated with their identities as individuals and also with the identities of racialized communities and individuals within those communities. Meaning, any sort of solution or prescription to the problem of racism that they developed lacked a systemic foundation. They had no institutional or systemic approach to the issue of racism. Now, you contrast that with a group like the Black Panther Party. Yeah, why was that? Why was that effective? The, and this is your stuff, right? Yeah. Like this is this is. This is <laughs> this yeah. is what gets your juices going. Right. Uh, would you say that? Yeah, I would. I okay. Would. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Black Panthers were special because they followed a long line of 
economic anti-capitalist thought that really came out of the early days after Reconstruction in the United States. So people like Marcus Garvey, has anybody in here ever heard of Marcus Garvey? Okay, good. Uh, Marcus Garvey was one of the first people in the United States to promote the idea of black nation building. The idea that black people as a political and economic unit need power. And so after people like Marcus Garvey you had um, leaders like uh, Malcolm X. Uh, eventually, it culminates into the Poor People's Campaign, but the Black Panther Party are sort of children of the Malcolm X, the Malcolm X's of the world, the Marcus Garvey's of the world, who promoted this idea called revolutionary nationalism. And as black nationalists, which is completely different um, than white nationalism, it's actually not the same at all. Right, black nationalism is a response to white racism and supremacy, um, and it's a force uh, and a movement um, for the liberation of oppressed peoples. Um, using this idea of revolutionary nationalism, the Black Panther Party, they were able to do really unique things with political economics. The first thing they did was problematize the ground out of which we have conversations around economic justice. So typically, if I was to ask you all what we mean by economic justice, um, without knowing everybody in the room, I'm making a, a, a huge you know, assumption here, um, but it's for the purpose of this conversation. I would think everybody would think we're talking about ways to make capitalism better, <laughs> right? Or ways to work within the system to achieve particular ends that can improve the lives and conditions of all people. And I'm here to tell you right now, um, part of the reason you think that is because the way we talk about economics and the way we can talk about economic justice is already sort of set up. It's already sort of rigged for us because there are only two real ways to talk about it. The first way is known as neoclassical economic thought, right? And this is essentially uh, you know, what they do on Wall Street. This is how people talk when you take uh, Economics 101 or you, know, you go to a business school. Um, but it teaches you the ins and outs of uh, the language of capitalism. The other way is Marxism. Um, and Marxism is interesting, right? Because you could be labeled a Marxist without really being a Marxist. All it takes to be labeled a Marxist is to just not take for granted the belief that capitalism uh, is the end-all, be-all, um, or a natural system in our uh, human history. So it like automatically scapegoats you yeah. or uh, uh, otherizes you right. if you have any sort of critique or belief that maybe capitalism isn't the end-all, be-all economic system. That's interesting, yeah. That it isn't inherent and it's not... Um, and it could potentially just be an option out of many options yep. that we can choose, right? Um, and so the Panthers were in that second school of thought. They, they, were, they, were, they were labeled Marxist. Um, now, there's a lot of baggage that comes with, you know, Marxism, right? Um, you know, Marx himself had a lot of particular beliefs about utopia and human evolutionary development and so on and so forth. Capitalism being a stage along that path um, and, and eventually socialism and communism being the ends to a utopian society. Um, and that you, don't have to, you don't have to believe that to be a Marxist, right? Uh, I'm just letting you know what Marx believed um, and why that's important to think about when thinking about this conversation right now. Because the Panthers, even though they weren't Marxist, they did apply Marxist tools of analysis, right? And a lot of people did, even, even members of um, the, the, the Poor People's Campaign, right, were, were very critical of capitalism in this way. Because what Marx offers to us um, is a language of critique by using class struggle as the biggest sort of litmus test for the direction of any particular society. You know, how, uh, how is the class struggle in that society? Um, because if the class struggle is tenuous, then Marx will say revolution is inevitable, right? When you say tenuous, what do you mean by that? Like if the class struggle, I mean, would you say we're at a point right now with the class struggle being tenuous? 
Absolutely. I think we've seen, I mean, just what, th three years ago, right? We saw one of the biggest protest movements um, in all of history uh, in the United States. Um, and because of the ways in which um, race is constitutive of class, I mean, you have to see uh, that protest as a manifestation of a lot of economic injustices taking place, right? I mean, you also had COVID, so you had a lot of people out of work. Uh, you just had a lot of frustration, for sure, um, boiling, boiling over into the streets. Um, but, but the main message, of course, was, you know, stop killing black people, right? Stop killing black people. That was, that, that was the, the, the main message that we've heard um, for the past maybe 10 years now that, 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 uh, that BLM and movements like that have been around. Um, but, you know, they're just continuations of the same problem that we're talking about today, right, which is, you know, Juneteenth and um, sort of uh, this, ex this, this extended, this, this long extended period of different ways to nuance black oppression, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, definitely we're still living in times where uh, these issues are at the forefront uh, and, and we need social theories to address them. Um, and the Panthers were crucial in doing that. So the way that they um, were able to critique capitalism was very important because in doing so, what they were able to do was problematize the ways in which capitalism needs an owner and a worker in order to function. Historically speaking, that has been the master and the slave. And for black communities, that has always been uh, be, being, being in the position of the slave has always sort of been the expected position, the sort of manual badge of, um, of uh, black people in the United States. Um, so what the Panthers did when thinking about economic justice, what they were able to do was um, create communities of self-sustainability. Self Every single thing that they did was revolutionary mainly because they were challenging the U.S. system by creating black socialist systems within it that they would own and control in such a way that their communities could not be exploited financially. And all of the products that were created in those communities could not be um, taken out. The money could not be extracted and put elsewhere outside of the community. Um, creating these sorts of unexploitable black communities was the hallmark of the Black Panther Party. And I'm talking about different programs. Um, the, the Free Breakfast for Children program was one of the um, institutions that they created. I mean, they had over 100 programs, right? Um, I can only think of a few off the top of my head right now. Um, the Free Breakfast for Children program was, was, was one of their hallmarks. Um, you had the Liberation Schools. You had free ambulance services. You had um, 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 rental and landlord services. You had free shoe programs, prison to busing, excuse me, busing to prison programs. Um, you know, you, you had, men, you had, oh, and I think one of the uh, most significant programs that actually went on to change um, healthcare in the United States were, was their healthcare modalities. They had sickle cell anemia um, foundations and, and, and different programs that they would run um, the Patient's Bill of Rights is actually a byproduct of that, um, of, of their, of their health care modalities. So the U.S. government was acutely aware of what the Panthers was, was doing. Um, they saw what they was doing, what, what they were doing, um, as extremely effective. Um, but they only allowed those programs to persist for about four years, 1967 to 1971. And so after that, we began to see a lot of political repression from the FBI and CIA. And, and you say allow because uh, they stepped in with, yeah, with creating an entire government agency that didn't exist before to take the leaders out. Is that? Yeah. Well, I say I say allow only because um, the Panthers weren't really on the radar yet. Right. Um, COINTELPRO did exist uh, early on in the 1900s. I want to say like 1920, like maybe maybe a little bit after that. Um, by the time they were focused on the Panthers, King had already been assassinated. So, so actually, Martin Luther King was 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 a prominent figure on the radar 
of COINTELPRO. COINTELPRO stands for Counterintelligence Program. Um, it was led by uh, the former director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. Um, its, its essential task was to undermine and dismantle and disrupt um, black nationalist organizations. And they were very effective, um, extremely effective. J. Edgar Hoover is known for saying a very famous phrase um, I believe this was in 1960. It was the year that Martin Luther King was assassinated because a month earlier to the day, J. Edgar Hoover said, uh, we have to prevent the rise of a black messiah. And after King was assassinated, that's when they turned um, to target the Black Panther Party. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, we're not going to hold you and accountable and sorry, to the dates, th by the way. This, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. This is all public <laughs> knowledge. I'm not saying anything that isn't uh, publicly available. You can Google everything I'm saying to you right now. Um, this is all information that's publicly available and accessible on the FBI's website. Um, so, I mean, it's it's all out there. I'm not saying anything that, you know, uh, you all can't find out for yourself. <laughs> I, I'm curious about, you know, one one thing that, just having conversations, say like, you know, you're sitting around a bonfire and uh, you're having an adult beverage with your friends um, and you get into whatever the deep, fun conversations that sometimes come up, depending on your friend group. Some of your friend groups might not go that route, um, but sometimes that happens uh, around a bonfire um, and, you know, you'll talk about it and you'll say, oh, yeah, that's that's great, but that's all in theory, right? I think what's so fascinating is, no, it's not. <laughs> like, the Black Panthers did it. For four years, they created communities with empowered black people that were taking care of each other. They figured it out. And so I, I'm curious just, you know, for you, do you st like, is, does this get your juices flowing? Like, you've dedicated your life to this, as you said, because in some ways you're almost saying, like, Yo, it happened. <laughs> like, s people did it. And it, we have the proof. Here's, here's the outcomes. We, I mean, is that, is that kind of why it's so, ex I guess, exciting or energizing yeah, I, for I you? Think, I think that uh, that's the main reason it's exciting. You know, I, I, I sometimes wonder, you know, what could have been if um, the Black Panthers were able to persist past 1971 in, in successful ways, if they weren't, if they weren't um, disrupted. I mean, they obviously had a lot of internal conflicts, um, but I think the work that they were doing was groundbreaking and historic. We had never seen anything like it. We had never seen a version of socialism um, work in that way, uh, spe specifically to counter the anti-blackness in a capitalist system. Um, I think about, again, you know, we talked about three years ago, right? We talked about the biggest protest movement in U.S. history, where is it now? Um, and 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 more importantly, I mean, this is a church. Um, where was the church? Um, where are churches today when thinking about social theories to address not just racism but capitalism um, and their inseparability? You know, I did some. Um, you mentioned I was an activist. I, I did some. I did some community organizing. Uh, for about two, three years, um, and I was able to learn a lot in those spaces. Um, one thing I one thing I did notice was, as a minister, uh, there were there were not many ministers <laughs> around. Um, particularly when we look at a movement like Black Lives Matter, um, specifically the organization, maybe not so much the movement, but. I know that when the organization was was on Front Street um, and and really leading this this sort of new age, uh, you know, movement for Black Lives, um, Black churches weren't really central, and churches in general weren't really central to that movement. Uh, and so, because I'm steeped in um, the impact of the Black Panthers. Um, and how effective they were, at least for those four years. Um, I also think about how that was not a, a pastor-led movement either. Mm. You see, um, the civil rights movement was, and the Poor People's Campaign was, but it would seem to be the case that churches have lost a lot of momentum 
since the Poor People's Campaign. Um, they were eclipsed by black power. They've been eclipsed by the movement for black lives. And so where is the church today when we think about actual praxis or revolutionary social practices that we can look to um, as, as material and concrete, as programs or even institutions um, that can create an alternative world within this one? You know, I'm not, I'm not an advocate for taking what the Panthers did, and I'm not trying to push their cause. Um, I respect what they did, and I see it as a valuable historic lesson, um, one that we can draw ideas from, maybe insights and inspiration. Um, but I think that the ethics that comes out of churches needs to come from us, and there's a lot of history that we can learn from. So, I mean, that's actually wha what my book is about. Yeah. My, my, my book actually presents um, what I call the ethics of dismantling mm. without giving away too many spoilers. Um, but it's really a, a, a Black Panther-inspired um, ethic or code um, when looking at ways to effectively um, counter capitalism such that not just black people, but all people can self-determine and be empowered um, and, and I just want to add one more thing uh, specifically about the Black Panthers. Um, you know, I think what the Panthers left behind for us gets overlooked. I don't know that a lot of people understand them to be a black socialist organization of revolutionary import. And I think that the way we tell their story um, doesn't fully account for the ways in which they changed um, economic theory. Um, nobody gives them credit for creating a new world inside of this one. Mm. Um, you know, when we see documentaries and we watch stories about them, you know, it's always about the, the, the black leather jackets and the, and the afros and things, but it's never about how sophisticated they were as intellectuals um, and the intellectual resources they provided um, to contribute original thoughts to Marxism, but also apply original ideas in society that we've literally never seen before. Wow. Um, before we get to sort of the, the closing thoughts of, you know, how do we apply this today and how you saw it work um, in Colorado, um, I, have, I have a personal question, um, if you're willing to go that way. But I just want to remind everybody, if you want to ask any questions, um, you can go to brewchurchkc.com. We have a few in there, but just want to remind you, in case you had some questions, um, I can tell there's some disappointment. Disappointment in the church. Disappointment in how the Black Panthers are portrayed as a movement. Um, and in some ways, it, it's like this project is rewriting the story and saying, no, actually. And, and maybe part of it, too, the disappointment that you feel is, um, and you know, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but is that it's, men and women that look like you that are given this bad um, sort of rap or con these bad connotations, these negative connotations. So disappointment with the church, disappointment with the image of the Black Panthers, would you say that that's the case for you? Um, so, uh, you know, I want to be really clear. I love the church. I love the church. And I think that any disappointment I feel um, because of the church comes out of that deep love that I have for the church. Um, you know, I, I grew up, if, you know, if we're getting personal, I, I grew up sort of in, in, two, in two different environments. I was always kind of looking on both sides of things. Um, you know, I grew up in Roxbury, Massachusetts, Roxbury, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, historically black neighborhood, um, poor black neighborhood. But, you know, I went to private schools, man went to private schools. And so, you know, I saw a lot of differences in my social environments every day. Race was always on my mind, in other words. You know, r race, race was always on my mind. Um, it was something I couldn't escape. It was my everyday reality. Um, so I always had questions about it, and I always had questions about the church. You know, what does the church have to say about it? Because going to private Catholic schools, um, you know, is a different experience than going to a black church on Sundays. Um, but the messages never really converged, you see. And so I always had questions about um, 
what the gospel had to say about racism, what the gospel had to say about um, different types of social injustices. And so I heard about black theology, and that's actually where I found uh, my entryway into this conversation, um, where I felt that there could be more we could do as a, as a church, um, as Christians, as, as communities, to address some of these problems from a faith-based perspective. Um, so am I disappointed? Yes and no, right? I think that um, there are lots of great churches out here doing the best work that they can do and the best work that they know how to do. Um, I think that for those of us who go to seminary and, 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 and or don't, right, but, but take time to read and, and dig into history and find out about um, ideas and resources that could potentially be in service of the church and the gospel, you know, I think that, um, that that's our work to do. You know, um, and that's what I'm doing. So I'm just trying to I'm trying to do my part <laughs> in, in serving the church and being a member of the church um, without necessarily doing it in a conventional way or in the way that we would typically think about, you know, every Sunday uh, sitting in a pulpit and, and sort of preaching. Um, this is sort of my contribution, um, holding the church accountable while also being a member, looking at, you know, my role in this and, and what part I have to play. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's that's really cool. I, wa I want to, and, and for the Panthers, yes, yeah. definitely. Definitely it's a reclamation project for the yeah. Panthers. Yeah. Definitely a reclamation for project for the Panthers. Um, a lot of what uh, I learned about the Panthers in doing this project was, I don't want to say self-taught, right? But I had to demystify a lot of my understanding of the Panthers. The COINTELPRO, um, the, the COINTELPRO, the, the reality of COINTELPRO really did a lot to vilify the Panthers, um, so the Panthers got a really bad rap and, you know, if it wasn't for a lot of extracurricular activities to try and uncover the truth, we wouldn't really know a lot of the truths about the Panthers, um, because of how successful that campaign by Jagger Hoover really was. Um, I mean, you, have you all heard of the movie, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah? Well, that, that movie tells in great detail, you know, about, um, Fred Fred Hampton, chairman of the Chicago Black Panther Party, and how he was assassinated by the FBI. But it took about 10, 11 years for us to learn that, that that's actually what happened. Um, what was reported when it happened was that, uh, you know, the Black Panther Party had started a shootout with the police. Um, but we, I mean, we know in, in actuality it was, a, it was a raid, that they raided his, his house at 4 a.m. and killed him in cold blood. So, you know, a lot of information about the Panthers was shrouded in misinformation. And, uh, I mean, this, the, that, vilif that, vil that vilification campaign was extremely successful. So my project is really just to, it's not so much to, 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 to deal with the drama and the sort of politics of who they were as individuals in the group. It's to look at their praxis, look at their revolutionary social practices, look at the institutions and ideas that they left behind, look at them as intellectual resources, and then think about how we can start a conversation today in terms of um, picking up where this last movement left off, looking at possible you know, things that we could have done better in terms of economic theory, joining the church um, to some of these secular social movements and so on, just learning from the past. So, so to get to today and to wrap up the conversation um, so we can get to you know, the Q&A, um, Circling back to the very beginning, you talk about reparation as needing to repair damage that was done. You called these reparation movements. Like what the Black Panthers were doing was a reparation movement. It was repairing um, some of that damage. And so. Self reparation. Yeah, self reparation. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. Um, so, what can we, apart from having these conversations, what can we do today, and how have you seen it work? Because you saw uh, yeah. a movement that you said it, it was working, and it had a very particular structure. And so, yeah, um, yeah. to wrap up the conversation, what, yeah. what does that look like That's today? Great. How do we yeah. continue the work of the Black Panthers that you so passionately love? Um, well, how do we continue that work? That's that's an ongoing question. That's an ongoing question, right? But I think it definitely begins with having an anti 
capitalist consciousness. Um, as far as you know, what we can do today, you know, I think that um, you know when you when you look at the racial reconciliation movement, you know, there are lots of lessons that we can learn from a movement like that, right? Um, the reason, one of the main reasons, uh, on top of the reasons that I gave you all as to why they were they were unsuccessful, um, they weren't really working with non-white people, right? And and that was actually one of the reasons that white evangelical Christians were selected. Historically speaking, they lived separate from other races, especially black people. Um, when I when I was doing community organizing, you know, I was I was uh, I was doing some BLM work. There was a group that I learned about. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, they, I was impressed at times at the ways they would show up and do the work with us. This, this, was, a, this was a white group, a, a white racial justice group, if you could call it that, um, called Surge, uh, showing up for racial justice. How many people have heard of Surge? Oh, great. Okay. Um, now, Surge, I thought, was, was a great was a great group um, um, because of what they were created for, right? So in theory, you know, I think the idea that white people should organize other white people is fantastic, right? Um, I, think, I think typically when we think about race, we think it's a non-white issue, right? Because we have black people and so on. Um, and and, and um, I think just colloquially, right, white people aren't socialized to think of themselves as part of a white community, right, in the way that racialized communities are, um, are taught to know you're, you're not white, right? Um, what, was, what was great about Surge was that that was part of their consciousness, that they were acutely aware of uh, white people's responsibility to organize white people um, and to show uh, members of the group um, the importance of having a role in the struggle for racial justice. And that role, um, while it is advocacy, right, um, it's important to know how that role looks, knowing that advocacy can look one of three ways, right? You can have ag advocacy for, advocacy by, or advocacy with. In Surge, um, you know, they would never show up in, in the presence of BLM and try to take over, right? They were very deferential. They were very willing to um, defer and allow black people to lead the movement for racial justice, right? And I thought that that was the best sort of methodological approach. Um, and it, it did remind me a little bit of the black, the, the black Power movement and that the Black Panthers were sort of the vanguard of that movement. Um, so even though you had they had you know, allied support, right? they were still out in the front leading that movement, and that's why it was so effective. You know, Surge sort of practiced a similar methodology, right? And this is, a, and this is actually a methodology that comes out of uh, womanist theology. Um, specifically, womanist theology will say, um, you know, if you center the most dispossessed in black communities, then everybody in the black community will be free, right? Um, but you can also sort of extrapolate from that. If you, if you center the most dispossessed in any community, um, then everybody else will get free, right? If you center their freedom. And that was sort of the approach that Surge took, right? Because they understood that um, even though they're doing the work for racial justice, they still have white privilege. I mean, they're still white people. They, you know. And so I even in that movement, they, they, their privilege didn't uh, overshadow their ability to actually be helpful and contribute. Um, so when we did marches, for example, they would be liaisons between us and the police, right? Um, if we're holding you know, all black spaces or uh, people of color spaces, um, they would create sometimes even boundaries around us um, so that if white people wanted to come in, they would communicate directly with them and let them know what was going on, you know? So just, just different, putting your body on the line means a lot uh, in the movement for racial justice when thinking about what you can do. Wow. And uh, to bring in sort of the spirituality side of it or, you know, the Christianity side of it, I mean, that's the Christ example, right, is putting your body on the line for the sake of the most 
marginalized person. And and I think to extrapolate what you're saying, um, that I think is is it's just really powerful. N- and and correct me if you don't think the statement is right. No one is free. I agree with that for sure. No one is free until everyone is free. Everyone is free. I think that's the biggest truth of all. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I, in some ways we have we have a group in our in our church. Uh, th- this is Brew Church is a part of a community called Good Shepherd that is doing some of that work. That's um, you know, it's a it's a group of mostly white people coming together to learn um, and also then to s- figure out okay, what does that look like? Um, and I, and I think the exciting thing is to think about you know in the future how do these groups of people, and it might not be one big sort of collective movement, but maybe it starts to form in the minds of these groups that exist in all kinds of places, the pockets, saying, okay, at some point we are going to put our bodies on the line for these black communities and let them lead. Um, I I think about right now, you know, a lot of people are like, okay, well, why is it um, police reform? Well, that's what black people are saying. So why don't we follow that lead? (laughs) Why don't we say, hey, actually, no, let's do this other thing. It's like, no, our people are getting killed, period. And no one's free until everyone's free. So why not do it? Do you have any closing thoughts before we get to the questions we have? We have two, by the way. Yeah, um, any closing thoughts with all that? No, I think that what you just said is uh, extremely necessary to say. Um, you know, we started off by really focusing on uh, black communities. You know, given, given the topic of Juneteenth, you know, I wanted to start off by saying, you know, no one, no one black is free until everyone black is free. Um, and that, right, really is uh, a microcosm in the larger system of, of, of capitalist oppression where we think about um, how, all, how all of us are vulnerable to being exploited by the system, right? And so none of us are, are free until all of us are truly free. Um, I, d- I wanted to echo that sentiment um, and, sort of, and sort of bring it back out to that sort of macro level because that is a really important and insightful point to make. Yeah. So we have two questions, um, unless any more pop up at some point. Uh, Juneteenth was just recently made a federal holiday. Is this long delay a byproduct of systemic racism in our country? I think it was uh, partly because of the pressure put on the administration, if I'm not correct, because of the climate um, of the time, right? I mean, uh, the racial climate of the time was, was, was stressful. Um, and I mean, you had, you had BLM sort of in full swing. You had a pandemic uh, sort of exacerbating things. Um, you know, one thing I'll say, and this is also something that I learned from my research on the Panthers, the Panthers were extremely effective at the time because of the Vietnam War. They had received a lot of support, allied support, from people who are anti-war. Um, that so was the hippies. Yes, that the, was that the was the tie-dye wearing hippies were like, let's do this. That was <laughs> we got these <laughs> black men with guns. Let's go. It, it was extremely important that they had that support, though, right? Because what we saw after '71 was a wane, a waning in, in in Allied support, mainly because of concessions. Concessions. Um, once. Uh, the president began to pull troops from the from the from the Vietnam War. Um, once there was no longer a draft, you know, a lot of people who had supported the Panthers kind of kind of didn't really need or feel the need to anymore. You see, and so you know, fast forward to today, we're talking about Juneteenth being made a a, a, a national holiday in the midst of a lot of racial unrest happening in the country, right? I mean, it would make you think, or wonder at least, when looking back into history, could that have been a concession? Um, I mean, the United States was, was, was fully aware of Juneteenth um, the whole time, <laughs> since 1865. Why now? Um, 
I mean, it just leads you to think, right? It leads you to think. Um, but I mean, I didn't really know much about Juneteenth. I mean, t- Juneteenth was a t- was a Texas it was a Texas sort of sort of Remembrance Day um, that sort of spread more to the South uh, over time, and then eventually, you know, by the time it came up to the North, where I was in Boston, I mean, this was this was decades later, right? Um, so I mean, it's just interesting that now it became a, a national holiday. I mean. Yeah, that's a that's interesting. You're gonna start as conspiracy theory here, well, the no, first no. Brew Church conspiracy theory. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. I'm, um, not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> uh, I, I just I, I will say uh, I will be honest, and I have some anti-Texas bias. Um, so I'm sorry if you're from Texas, but I guess it surprises me in a pleasant way that uh, Texas is maybe the originating place that was talking about this before the whole country was. So, <laughs> but, but still, why were they talking about uh, that's, uh, that's, that's good. There you go. <laughs> um, okay. How does the group move 1985 Detroit police bombing fit into these movements of anti-racism and anti-capitalism? What was that question? How does the group move? The 1985 Detroit police bombing fit into these movements of anti-racism and anti-capitalism. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I think I've 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 uh, I've learned about Move. Um, Move had a very uh, they had a very fraught relationship with with the police. Um, you know, there were different groups that existed after the Black Power movement. Um, because of the rise of black consciousness at the time, um, in the U.S. in particular. Um, and, and, you know, MOVE was one of those groups who were um, opposing police brutality, uh, but sort of going the extra mile to not back down, um, so, you know, I would just say that MOVE was a continuation of a particular uh, kind of momentum that came out of the Black Power Movement and the Black Consciousness Movement. Um, and, yeah, I mean, they're, they're different, but they're, but they're radically different than groups like the Panthers. Yeah. All right, and this is our last one, and then, uh, you know, we'll close it out. But you, you can say your book title once more, maybe around when you think it's going to come out, um, so people can be on lookout for it. But do, do you feel that COVID was pivotal in some of the recent movements because people finally had time to pay attention? And would you agree that making room to pay attention is important? Yeah, I think that uh, not only were people – given time people were forced yeah forced into having time right some people just had nothing but time i mean some people wanted to work some people couldn't work um some people were laid off for load right um so i think there was a level of frustration uh coming coming from the sort of environment in society um due to the reality that um you know people were just people people fell on hard times economically um, I definitely think that fed into uh, a lot of the racial uh, unrest and the frustration that comes from com- comes with that for sure. Um, so I think you had a combination of of you know both of these factors um, really playing a part in the way people expressed you know um, their overall frustrations with everything that was going on, not just with police brutality, but you know, with with the overall system. Yeah. So, uh, book title again, and when it's coming out, um, and then, um, yeah, we'll we'll close it up. Thank you, Fabian. So, my my book is called Black Theology and the Black Panthers. It deals with the relationship between uh, economic justice and racial equality. Um, I look specifically at the Black Panther Party as an economic model of racial justice, and I put their intellectual resources and uh, intercommunal survival programs, specifically from 1967 to 1971, uh, in conversation with activist armors of churches, specifically black churches. Um, My goal is to just start a conversation. Um, I present uh, an ethic, a constructive ethic, towards the end of the book um, to frame a way to think about wholeness and self-direction as necessary factors for the self-determination of 
not just black communities, but all communities, but specifically black communities, because that's the audience of my book. Um, but I don't have all the answers. Um, this, this book is not me laying out uh, a sort of manifesto on how we can fix capitalism and create a better, more just global society. Uh, again, this is just me trying to start a conversation and putting forward ideas that I think could help frame uh, an approach to a larger prescription. Um, so I wanted to throw that out there. And, and I'm hoping that by starting this conversation, we could get others to join in, um, to, to, to really get into some theory, to really get into some history, and construct their own visions of a just global society. Because I believe that with all these different pictures, we can create a mosaic of a new world. Um, I hope that didn't sound too cheesy. Um, but no, I that's think, beautiful. I that's, that's the that's final that's thought, honestly. <laughs> We're going to create a mosaic of a new world. So if you'd uh, like to start those kind of communities or like to push your community to be like that, um, yeah, the book's coming out. So let's give another round of applause. Dr. Bartholomew, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, so grateful for you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Peace and blessings, everyone. <laughs>